Great. All right. Thanks, everyone, for your time. And thank you, Mike, for joining us. Um, so today's uh, topic is how to communicate risk reflections from real life and Hollywood. So hopefully this will be a bit of fun, but also there'll be some useful uh, insights about communicating risk to come from it. Uh, just briefly, by way of background on this session, um, a few weeks ago, I watched the movie um, Don't Look Up. For those who haven't seen it, it's a, a Netflix movie about this meteor that comes um, towards Earth. Uh, and it's about how the, the world, and in particular, the um, US political system, I guess, copes with this impending risk. Um, I, I know it's a polarizing movie, but I quite enjoyed it. So I think worth a watch if you haven't seen it already. So following the movie, I, I wrote an article that uh, some of you might have seen on LinkedIn, generated a bit of interest about some of the risk-related issues that came out of one particular scene where these scientists were trying to communicate to the president about, well, this risk is, is imminent and we think it's important, but does the president really feel it's, uh, it's important? Uh, following that, I had a couple of conversations with Mike, uh, who's also seen the movie, uh, reflecting on sort of some of the psychological issues, but also the practical realities of risk management, communicating risk in the real world. Conversation I thought was really quite fascinating. I thought there was quite a lot that came out of our conversation. So I suggested to Mike that maybe we should have a, uh, record a podcast conversation, which he uh, kindly agreed to. And then I, I upped the ante a bit by saying, why don't we make it a LinkedIn <laughs> event and we'll um, turn it into a podcast subsequently. So uh, here we are. So hopefully this session is going to be relevant for risk risk management professionals. There's, there's a chunk of, I guess, communication, risk communication that should be relevant in that space. But I think also for people who are have an operational role that has a risk component or a strategy role that has a risk component or sitting in a board that has a risk component or have an investment function that has a risk component. So I think there should be some, some bits in there for, for people across each of those areas. And we're going to focus on what are some of the problems. So I'm going to ask Mike a few questions about some of the problems that he's seen, some of the issues, and then we're going to reflect on not just the movie, but also some uh, um, elements of real life, some of the psychological research about what you can do to communicate uh, risk. So in terms of the format, I've got seven questions in front of me to, to throw to Mike. We'll have a bit of a dialogue back and forth. But for everyone else, please feel free to um, contribute questions, comments in the chat as we go along. I'll do my best to keep track of them as we're going. And if we don't get to them during the course of the session, then um, we'll try and leave some time at the end to catch up on anything we've missed. But please do feel free uh, to jump into the chat box as we're going. So I hope that suits everybody. Um, uh, perhaps a good place to start off then would be to perhaps better introduce you, uh, Mike. So um, Mike van der Graaf, whose name I constantly misspell, uh, is the uh, General Manager for Risk and Performance Management at Treasury Corp of Victoria. He's also the Melbourne Co-Director of the Global Association of Risk Professionals, otherwise known as GARP. Um, that's very brief, Mike. Maybe if you don't mind giving us a little bit of a sense of your journey here and, and what led you into the risk field. Yeah, Simon, thanks. Um, and, of course, great to uh, be on this podcast. Uh, very honoured and pleased to, uh, to do this. Um, look, the, the background really on, on risk management, uh, like so many of us, you know, sort of roll into it through many other backgrounds. Uh, I started off in consulting with, in a very technical role, and my first job happened to be in banking, and that's how I became the banking expert and uh, stayed that uh, in that way for 25 or nearly 30 years now. Um, the Really what got me into risk was through jobs, uh, quantitative work. In At the time, it was Basel II, late 90s. 
uh, when we really started to quantify a lot of the, the risk um, and capital um, positions for banks and the consultancy was doing a lot of work in that. So, and then from that, it rolls on into other types of risk, et cetera. So that, that's then led into uh, a whole new career of risk. So yeah, that was the, the start of it really. Fantastic. So, and now you've uh, you've been at Treasury Corp for for how long? Uh, ten years, actually. Uh, this month, so uh, it's clicked up a decade. Um, yeah. So same yeah. amount of time as I was with ANZ before that, which is uh, amazing. And before that, I was with uh, with Deloitte. Yeah, so in ten years, now TCV. Fantastic. So just, I mean, this isn't going to be all about TCV, mm. but just to give us a bit of a sense about um, what you're currently doing and the, I guess the perspective you bring from that, from a TCV perspective. So what what sort of risks are you looking at from mm. uh, in, in TCV? Yeah, I, so clearly being a Treasury Corp, um, it's um, it's financially, financial risk dominated. Um, clearly all the, the normal, if you will, if you're from a bank or investment function, we have uh, over $100 billion balance sheet at the moment. So a lot of it is around funding liquidity risk. There's investment risk of the liquidity portfolios that we hold, um, credit risk as a result of that. Um, so there's a lot of financial risks uh, that we clearly look at and we use all the same measurements that banks would, would use and, and superannuation for some of the investment stuff. Um, of course, there is also being a smaller firm and looking at the whole risk as operational and strategic kind of risk in the enterprise risk management function. So that's more looking at your, um, your full risk register, if you will, and, and giving that effect. Yeah. Okay. No, that sounds good. All right. Well, let's let's jump into some of these issues. Um, and before we get into the, the sort of the Hollywood bent, um, maybe if you can give us your sense of some of the biggest ticket things that you've observed from your career across the risk function. So if, if I ask you specifically to say, look at communicating risk to a board, let's start with communicating with a board. Mm. And in that context, what would you, if you had to pick one thing, I know it's hard to narrow it down to mm. one, but if you were to pick one thing, what would you say is the biggest challenge in communicating risk in that context? Huh. I'll make it two. I think it's the succinctness of, uh, of your message, getting, getting your succinctness uh, down pat because you really always have much less time than you think you have. And the other one would be, which is related to this, you've got to be succinct but creative because your audience may, and this is a topic for later in the podcast, your, your audience may be slightly distracted when you might only have a, you know, you see them once a month, right? So you, to get a message across, sometimes you need to just vary the message, the same message over and over again, but in a different way. Yeah, presumably you're not the only item on the agenda, I guess, when you mm -hmm. go off. To, <laughs> to, we'd, to, we'd like to, to, we'd like to, but we're not. Yeah, okay. So we'll, we'll pick up some of those themes on the way through. Yeah. All right, so stepping away from the board then, what about communicating with your colleagues, peers, other parts of the business? Mm. What would you say? Well, if you had to pick one, or, or maybe I'll give you two if, um, if I'm uh, yeah. generous. Uh, look, I think we've tried to, in the vocabulary, add a few more um, standard lines around, you know, what's the real risk here to manage? Or, you know, if it's about controls, is that a real control? So make, keep it really simple, but get it into the everyday conversation. And I'm always pleased when I hear my peers actually starting to go, actually, what's the real risk here? And you go, okay, well, that message has come through. So it's trying to get the conversation going through quite simple or straightforward bits of questions you can ask, really, to um, to bring risk across. Yeah. So in that sense, are you saying adding the words like actual what is the actual, what is the real mm -hmm. risk? Does mm -hmm. that mean sort of putting it in terms that the, the person you're speaking with, it's meaningful for them? Is, is that what you're getting at with that? Yeah, or sometimes people might have a couple of 
issues mixed up and it's to really try and be honed down to what the real issue is. They think it's an issue, but it's actually something else that's the real issue. So it's really trying to unpack things a bit more with them. So sometimes that's more like, um, yeah, it's really trying to, uh, yeah, distill what the real risk is. Are we really clear on that as a group? Uh, would we're always, would, you, yep. would you have an example? Sorry to cut you off. Would you have an example where someone's got the wrong interpretation of what the real risk actually was? Um, yeah, look, it could be through, sometimes it's more operational, you know, with implementing new systems, for example, we might be focusing on one thing, uh, whether it's a feature on a system when it's actually not that feature, but it might be actually related to the backup or do we have enough people to actually run that part of the process? So it's actually a different risk than what we initially thought it was. Um, it's maybe a quick one just on the, on the thinking about it on the run, but. It's, it's yeah. just trying to unpack what's really going on often when we're doing new initiatives. Okay. And what mm. about, um, so we've done boards, we've done mm. sort of internal um, colleagues. What about external stakeholders? So maybe communicating with regulators, communicating mm. with customers, with business partners. What would you say yeah. is the biggest communication challenge in that context? Um, I think for us, and I think it applies to all businesses here, and, and I see we've got a lot of people in here with various different backgrounds on the on the call. Um, it's really with external stakeholders, it's getting the context right. It's making sure they understand the context of your business because we all have our unique challenges that we live every day um, and um, they don't, and you just need to be aware of that. So we have to almost like, you know, reset to when I talk to say potential supervisor again about reminding them, for example, that the a state financing authorizing context is very different from a bank. And sometimes say, you know, it's good to remind them of that before we continue the conversation. Um, just yeah. to, yeah. Yeah, I guess it mm. may be a bit like the board. They've got a lot of other things on their agenda. Absolutely. And, totally. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Okay. So let's let's jump into some of the things that came out of uh, the movies. And I, I know in our conversation, we actually went a bit beyond this one particular movie to sort of find similar sort of parallels elsewhere. Mm. So sort of, I guess drawing from that that, uh, that movie and, and your own experiences or, or, or whatever, um, one of the things that we spoke about that came out, uh, which obviously was a big issue in the movie, was dealing with a low probability event. So in the movie, they had this meteor, well, obviously it became a high probability event after it gets a bit closer to the earth. But before that, chance of a meteor strike, well, it's a low probability event. And obviously we've got parallels in the world today. A few years ago, if we looked at pandemics, what's the chance of that? Well, the last major one we had was 100 years ago. Okay, it's a low probability event. It's not zero, obviously. Okay, so there's a real challenge there, of course, is how do we get people to think about these low probability events? But balancing not wanting them to over i guess over prepare for things that actually are probably going to be unlikely to occur so, so what's what do you think is some of the strategies there i mean putting things on risk registers what, what what do you what's your strategy for dealing with low poverty events yeah yeah we talked about it previously about the risk register and uh uh, look, the risk register really is only a start, clearly. It's, it's where you collect the things you have identified as potential risks, but it's not the end story, right? And, and lots of risk registers would have had pandemic. They would have had a climate risk, for example, is the other major one that I see as a, as a parallel with this movie. Uh, meteor strikes probably are not on the risk register, to be honest. But uh, um, So it's really a starting point. And I think, look, this is where I'll... I'll, I'll 
the interesting thing is that I, my view is that risk management really is what if I took, uh, use a behavioral economics term of a remembering self uh, for people who, who know a bit about Kahneman and his research. Remembering self is the, the images that we remember of like an experience and uh, we have a very much a recency bias. And the way I see risk is to make sure that we replay back to our business that there is actually a much longer history and that in that longer history, there has actually been a lot more risk. And we'll, we can, through, say, scenario analysis or stress testing, you can play some of these things back. So you can actually become that remembering self for the organization as a risk manager. So that's maybe one interesting way to look at it. So when you're looking at these kinds of events, they always have parallels. And you can bring some of that back in your analysis and your conversations. So that's really where you can make it um, come to life. Um, and yeah, I think that that's a really important role that we can play because we usually have a bit of a long history looking backwards, whereas clearly, uh, I think most of our um, business colleagues clearly tend to be more looking at opportunities in the here and now, which is, which is what they need to do. And together, we can sort of come up with the right outcomes, but it is bringing that, 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 that history back into the conversation. Yeah, so take, choosing then the pandemic. So mm -hmm. pre, pre this pandemic, did you guys sit down as a team or with the board to say, let's remember 1918 and what happened there. I mean, what was the approach there? Yeah, I, I think, look, I think there are, I think with some of these things, you look more at a getting the basics right on from, from a risk point of view. So we are looking at things like, have you, have you got your remote working right? Have, have I got the right processes in place? Have I got the right people? It's really a basics kind of thing. Um, because the scenario is every time is different, clearly. So what we don't want to do is be too specific and prescriptive on what a scenario can be, because you, you definitely know that it won't be like a 1914 pandemic. The world's clearly changed. Um, so what you can do is say, look, at least we, are, we have the building blocks in place. And then we have to be ready to respond, you know, with, with basically a good team of people that we have. So that's the thing, you know, you want to make sure you have the right people in place, good systems, and uh, ideally, you know, you don't have too many issues and errors already in your audit logs and in your operating model today that you can then deal with um, any issues that come up. So that's probably a test. If you're already feeling you're struggling now and a pandemic would hit you, you'd have a, a bigger problem, I would say. But I'll give you one other example. We did have in our pandemic list, uh, you know, a team A and a team B that seemed to be very well on paper. But of course, if you were in team A and you had to be in, in the, going into your office and into, uh, into a full train uh, when there's a, 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 an illness going around of which we knew very little, but it could be deadly or it wasn't, or was it, you know, where there's still that uncertainty, no one clearly wanted to be in team A. So everyone was home, right? So uh, things then change and then you just have to adapt with it. So the adaptability is an important factor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Carnum in, in that. I mean, one of the, my reflections on that is if, if you look at this, these things called decision weights that, that Kahneman's, it's probably not mm -hmm. just Kahneman, but mm -hmm. Kahneman's mm -hmm. anyway, is, is put a lot of it in his books like Thinking Fast and Slow, where you have these decision weights and, and you get this graph where you've got along the, the horizontal axis is, is how likely something is, how probable is it? So you go from zero to 100. And then on the vertical axis, you've got how do people respond to it? How do they incorporate it into their decision making? And so mm. in a rational world, you could have you should have this 45 degree line between the two where, okay, if it's 10%, well, I should weigh at 10%. If it's 50% chance of something happening, I should weigh at 50%. So you should have this 45 degree line. But in reality, you get a curved line where it goes up above. So we tend to overweight 
low probability events and then it dips down and we tend to sort of underweight some of those almost certain but not quite certain events mm. but if you zoom in on the little bit right near the, the origin where we're talking about these low probability events there's a like a bit of a discontinuity there where either we completely ignore it so if you can't imagine it you can't remember it happening you don't have no experience with it then it, it's almost like it's zero but if you can imagine it and you can remember it, I'm imagining now, I mean, what's the chance that we've all got pandemic plan plans for the next pandemic to come around? Well, of course, mm. we can all remember one and we're still living through one. So mm. it, it jumps above. I think part of that risk is that you end up with a massively overweighted response to what is now, again, probably a, a fairly low probability event going mm. forward. Yep. So how, yep. how do you balance the overreaction then, do you think? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, um, maybe just expanding on that and using another movie. Uh, when I was at uh, Risk Minds conference in 2019, and the date is relevant, December 2019, um, there was a Risk Management Minds conference in Amsterdam, and it was opened by Boris Johnson, who was then aiming to become uh, Prime Minister, but it wasn't yet. Um, and he asked us all, and I'll ask you now, Simon, you know, from the movie Jaws, um, who, who did we as risk managers think that the, the hero was of the story? So, Simon, who do you think this, the hero was of the story? Who do you think the story, the hero well, it, was? It would depend on what my, what jokes I'd like to paint about risk managers at this point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. are they like actuaries? Was it the accountant at the back? Or something? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The guy who shot the shark. Is yeah, that, that everyone would go, yep, we'll go with that. Or the scientist, perhaps. Anyway, of course, uh, Boris Johnson had to say, no, you're all wrong. Um, it was the mayor, of course, the mayor of the town, because what were the chances, he said, as a, you know, that a man-eating shark would suddenly appear out of nowhere on the shores of your quiet beach. Um, he said when he was mayor of London, uh, the amount of times people would come in to say, you, you can't host this event or you can't do this because of some weather event or something else. Well, so, you know, they wouldn't have done anything because of all the potential risks that uh, were put in front of him and he had to make those decisions. And so, so I wasn't surprised that in December 2020, when the pandemic actually became a thing, and he was actually prime minister, that uh, in the initial response probably wasn't as much a, uh, it was, he was still acting as the mayor who clearly wasn't quite, quite prepared to see this as a serious thing until he, of course, got sick himself and then things changed quite rapidly, which is, I think, another thing in our behavioral economics, like the, the seeing is believing. And if once people have experienced something, they become truly, you know, aware of the risk. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit later about that as well. But the, the I think the, the, the thing is that, yes, you don't want to, or as, I, as we in this group would know, you know, predict nine out of the last two recessions. You don't want to become like over, overblown in your, uh, um, you know, calling out risks when there aren't. So you've got to continue to be true with yourself. And I think um, there's another, you know, talking about Hollywood, uh, a Ted Lasso scene that people could write down and have a look at. If you haven't seen Ted Lasso yet, the dart scene, if you type that into your YouTube, dart scene, Ted Lasso, uh, uh, it's a fantastic little scene, but he, he talks about being curious, not judgmental. And that's, I think, a, a great word, I think, again, for risk managers particularly, but for management teams as a whole. You know, your point, Simon, indeed, like this whole understanding of, well, we've been just through one pandemic, Clearly, the chances of the next one aren't should, should therefore be lower in, in some ways, but you you never know, right? It depends on the probabilities you attach. You at least want to learn a few things from it and say what went well and what didn't, and what should we fix for the next time, and or did we do well actually coming out of this? Because maybe with remote working, we've all surprised ourselves and how well things went. So, um, 
I think you've got to just continue to be quite open-minded about these things and, um, and yeah, not try and overreact either, but not try and underreact. It's, it's a hard, hard thing, but I think mm. in your analysis and your dialogues, you try to get, get to the right outcome. So stay yeah. curious. Mm. Yeah. Now the, um, so going back to the, um, uh, don't look up movie again. So one mm. of the challenges from community, from the scientists' perspective, so the scientists had this risk that they thought was substantial. This meteor was coming, um, and mm. then they had to try and convince the president of it. Mm. Uh, and the, but the scientists didn't seem to have much credibility. So that the president mm. and the president's advisors were saying, "Well, you're not really from one of these Ivy League schools. We need to go and uh, Ivy League universities. We've got to go and." have a credibility check to get someone from one of these people that whether Harvard or a Stanford or name mm. title after them to, uh, to check mm. what's going on here. Mm. Mm. So that was going on the movie. And then it parallels, I guess, some of the stuff that we've seen from some of the regulatory reports that uh, APRA and others have produced or some of the internal reports from banks, which have uh, expressed concern that the voice of risk, this voice of risk has not been loud enough. Some mm. of this stuff came out off the back of the Royal Commission has not been loud enough. So, well, for a start, do you, do you agree that that is is a problem? And, and if so, how can risk function gain more credibility and therefore have a stronger voice? Would you say? Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's clearly yeah, as you mentioned, the regulatory frameworks already where they really try to enshrine a whole lot of, a whole bunch of rules and 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 practices to elevate and make sure that say a risk function is is calibrated at the right levels of decision making in an organization that it's properly staffed um, and all those uh, things around good capability i think that's your own assessment as a risk manager when you look in your own organization and ask yourself truly you know are we being heard enough and and are our messages coming through and if not why not um, because it should be right particularly in professional organizations um, uh, you, 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 when, when you are not seeing that come through, then it's almost time to, well, if you reflect on that and there is truly something going on there, you probably wouldn't want to be sticking around too long. And I've known uh, friends of mine who worked in quite, you know, uh, well-known organizations who decided to pull up stumps because they think this is thing, this is going to, this is, this is a disaster waiting to happen. And I'm not going to stick around here waiting for that because no one wants to listen to risk. So uh, I think you can be your own best um, as a professional, your own best um, uh, judge on that, I would say, but definitely have a look at that when you get more uh, closely involved with decision-making. I think um Definitely looking at the credibility of the risk teams. Um, how are they actually involved? Are you always the last to know or the first to know? Where are you in that more informal process as well? Um, you know, it's it's always good to know that when when new initiatives happen, you know, you'd have to ask yourself. I always do it as a bit of a more almost an informal test. You know, when did I first hear about this? And usually, you know, it's it's it's, it's great because you've you've been well informed. But if, if it's uh, something major where you're just the last one in the line to tick the box, if that would be a common cultural thing, then you want to change that. Um, so I think that that's really a test that you want to have for yourself. Um, and, and then make sure that you build the right relationships, I would say, with, um, with your peers and also with your CEO, your MD, to make sure that they start to think about your language, your topics and your concerns and bring you into the loop uh, on a more active basis. But it is a bit of a two-way street. Like I said, we just talked about it before. If you keep talking about technical risks, and the, the maths is an example here, I'll use a little equation. That The equation is that every, every maths equation you use halves your audience by two. So we should see about, you know, 
20 people signing off right now. And then if I do it again, another 10 will sign off. So um, you got to be quite careful in how you communicate your risk, I guess, um, you know, understanding of that. Uh, we all like to use more the technical side of risk, but you want to then distill it into the, the so what for your, um, for your end audience uh, so that they actually can use that information for their own decision-making because ultimately that's what it's all about, better decisions. Yeah, I mean, I, mm. I don't like using formulas either, but what I do like, though, is doing a little, having a little graph or graphic representation. So in this case, when I'm, I'm thinking of um, sort of building trust and credibility, I'm thinking of a, a little two-by-two two chart with my, my alignment. Do, do you trust me because we're trying to do the same thing? So are, are we on the same page and sort of pushing towards the same outcome? So are we aligned? And then... Am I, do I have the expertise? Can I, can I do what I say? Am I, am I trying to help you? And can I do what I say? Th those would be the two things. And then, and then each of them you can tweak in different ways. So mm. are we aligned? Well, if I ask you questions about what you're trying to achieve and I listen to you and I try and align what I'm doing with what you're, all that sort of stuff would suggest you can trust me because I'm not trying to help you. Doesn't help if I'm completely incompetent, of course. So then I also have to demonstrate my credibility in that mm. sense. So here are my mm. qualifications, and here's my case study yeah. of some stuff I've done before, and I've been in the industry for thirty years, and blah blah, blah all that, all that sort of stuff. And so you end up with yeah. levers at both of those two sort of ends of the spectrum that mm. potentially you can pull in different ways. And we did see that in in the movie, didn't we? A bit later on with um, uh, Peter Isherwood guy, the the sort of technology billionaire who rocked up. And he had not just Harvard um, sort of professors, he had Nobel Prize winners and he had a, a fantastic PowerPoint, not PowerPoint, it was a, like a computer simulation thing. And so his was just sort of dripping with all the things that the scientists lacked and the scientists didn't even put on a nice pair of, pair of shoes in it <laughs> so to, to, uh, to see the, to see the uh, president there. Yeah. Yes, I, I think uh, that, that, look, there's that that's interesting uh, kind of perspective on that. I, I think, and that's sort of like back to where that movie kind of um, failed a bit on the scientific side was that the people who actually were manning the telescope were also the people who had to go all the way through the whole system and not only talk to try and convince the president, but also um, be on talk shows and things like that. I think in reality, and if you have in any risk team in your organization or perhaps, you know, across the risk profession, particularly on these big things, you know, you'll have people who are really good at, say, the measurement, i.e. tweaking the telescopes and getting the maths right. And then there are people who understand those messages and get them across. So I think that was a bit of an, the unbelievability of the movie, I guess, in that you had to have the same person who did, the whole thing from start to finish. Uh, that's clearly, an, uh, I think, an unreal expectation. And I wouldn't expect, say, anyone in, in our organization, you know, you, you, if you're the, the person who would be doing all the technical measurements, that you'd be also the one trying to convince the chair that, you know, investment A is better than investment B because of the analysis I've just done. You know, it's just not going to happen. So, no, but if you mm. are that technical person who's done that work, I guess you need to have some of those skills because you'll have to communicate maybe one level up, maybe not five levels up the chain, mm. but you have to mm. at least mm. be able to mm. talk to your team or your boss or somebody yeah. Yeah. about some of those sorts yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things I did at TCV when I just started was to uh, – it's more like getting uh, – there were some workshops around what we call the clarity and making sure that we – try and get people to understand 
the messaging and communication to the audience because there was a bit of a well you know the messages of risk aren't coming through and it's like well let's is it you know is it because no one wants to listen or is it because we don't get our message to the level where we 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 make it as much understandable as possible what, what we're actually trying to say um, and that means moving an equation to the appendix right and that means looking more at what the objectives are and, and what the risks to the objectives are um, so so that was that was really helpful um, to do that and I think you need to just see how effective are we in communicating a message across which is a good check check and balance in your organization right yeah I, I, I quite mm. like that because that that's it's. I think it's very easy, isn't it, to to blame the person who fails to read your report or fails to listen to it or fails to open your email. Why won't these people listen? Mm. I'm telling them this stuff and mm. it's important. Mm. That that sort of stuff. And and you see that all 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 over the place. So I don't mm. know. Superfund sends out emails, and for every hundred they send, only six of them get opened, and three of them get clicked on. Why don't these people want to engage in the super? Well, actually, a fair and, and fair enough. Probably many of them don't want to for, for good reason. But then there's stuff that you can actually do with the communication. So it brings the responsibility back in, I guess, to mm-hmm. the communicator to make sure it's put in a way that people are actually going to want to to engage with. I think that's yeah, yep. I quite like that yep. um, little case yep. study. Hmm. So, so going back to another aspect of the movie. Um, so one thing I I noticed was how many, despite the fact that they were sort of trying not to dazzle us with formulas. They, they did dazzle us with numbers and, and specifically mm. percentages. So mm. I pulled a few out. So one of them was 99.78, 99.78%. So this, this was the response the scientists gave when they were asked about, well, what's the likelihood that this thing is going to hit the earth? Oh, no, it's 99.78% likely. Okay, so we got that number. And, and then the president said, oh, let's call it 70. So <laughs> we've got that number. And then a bit later on in a, in a slightly different context or quite a different context, we had this sort of algorithm where there was, oh, this sort of tech billionaire has identified 40 million bits of data that's going back mm-hmm. in your history since 1995 or something. We've analyzed all this data. We've whacked it into our algorithm. And then we know how you're going to die with 96.5% accuracy. No. Anyway, so so we've got we've got all these numbers being thrown at us. I thought that's quite interesting that they've given us, well, a, a bunch of numbers, but b some quite precise ones to in to the two decimal places mm. um, in in one at least in one of those cases. So I think there's some challenges in there. What, what's been your experience with trying to communicate maybe some specific numbers, some more technical aspects or, of risk, and some quantified sort of risk measures? What have you seen that's what's worked and that hasn't? Um, well, uh, the, yeah, that, that's interesting. I think uh, I'm one of our, uh, our former CFO uh, springs to mind who made a joke once to say that if you don't know it, say it with confidence and say it accurately. You know, so there is a 96.5% chance and I'm, you know, X. And uh, you all get very little pushback on that. So uh, uh, that was that's interesting. The, um, the other thing is the... Um, uh, the, just as a thought or an observation on this, is that I had to remind myself of the uh, that was a quote from um, Newton on um, the South Sea bubble. I don't know if you can recall that one, but that's about uh, you know he, he, he is, Newton actually lost a lot of money in the South Sea bubble, 
And he, he said, you know, I can predict the movements of the heavenly bodies, but I can't predict the madness of the crowd, right? And so clearly there is a predictability of heavenly bodies, funny enough, very much relatable to this movie, um, versus the uh, unpredictability of, say, markets or the unpredictability or the chaotic uh, chaotic um, uh, reality that you have when you try to predict somehow someone will die, for example. Um, so uh, that's actually that was actually quite interesting. Um, the the you the use of numbers. I think it's really. Um, I'd like to step away from that a little bit, and I'll use climate change as an example, where I'd like to look not only at the kind of the classification of probabilities of things that can happen more into broader categories, you know, likely, possible, you know, almost certain, certain. Um, but also then look at the consequence. And that I think, again, was not well um, highlighted so much in this movie. But uh, the, the Pascal's wager here comes to mind is another thing. You might have heard Pascal, who, who sort of wasn't a religious man, but he said, you know what, if I'm not a religious man, um, and there's a, a, you know, and there is a tiny, 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 small probability, and we're talking about low probabilities here, that actually there is a God, then, you know, I'll be forever, I'll be in hell forever, and that's a very long time. So I might forgo a few, you know, uh, earthly um, uh, things I might want to do in order to avoid that risk. So can, can we do something that we uh, can, can do uh, that are simple, that can avoid us with some of the worst um, sort of consequences um, of this. Um, so, for example, um, um, if you look at um, whether it's the pandemic or in this case, the meteor, your example there was around, uh, well, there is maybe, uh, let's call it 70% of your, uh, of the, uh, the meteor hitting, hitting the earth. Well, the consequence is, you know, a wipeout. Well, that's a pretty severe consequence, you know. So you got to look at different kind of dimensions of a problem, not just looking at the probability of something happening, but also what if we're wrong. And that's, I think, another thing that we see in behavioral economics a lot, you know, uh, the inquiring mind and the risk managers should have an inquiring mind. Like, what if we're wrong? So if we're saying it's only 70%, well, what if you're wrong? And what if it is 100? Well, the Earth's well tight. Well, that's a pretty big risk, right? <laughs> So you want to look at, uh, and if it's for your business, you know, if you want to look at a climate risk is a good example. You can have plenty of case studies around that. If you, um, you know, what if we're wrong? What if, what if we're, what if we're actually not, not, um, not clear on this and we're actually wrong? And I used this, this Pascal's wager uh, about 10 years ago now in one of the climate risk presentations um, about this and say, well, you know, if, you, if you're looking at climate risk and you're wrong, well, you actually, you're actually putting the future of the planet on a very different path so you know what what can you do to change to change things around uh, that are simple to do that can avoid some of the worst consequences so you want to look at the pragmatic uh, side of things yeah you've mentioned quite a few things there so i might just come mm. back and um, pick up a couple of things mm -hmm. at the start you were mentioning how your your boss was saying look if you're not sure say it's 96.5 percent accurate or something and, <laughs> and say, it, mm -hmm. say it with confidence which is sort of, I mean, I can understand what perhaps is driving that, which is that people tend to read into these things, different messages. So not only do mm. I hear, okay, this is highly probable if you say 96.5, but I also hear, gosh, you've got it down to a decimal place, which mm. sounds like you're very precise. It sounds mm. like you're doing mm -hmm. that with a lot of accuracy. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be that you're bullshitting mm -hmm. me, which I'm starting to worry about mm -hmm. based on what your boss has just, <laughs> just told you. 
But this is, I think that's a significant one that you, the way we communicate isn't, isn't just about the actual thing on the page. Oh, yeah. It's all the messaging yeah. that goes around it, isn't it? And so the, mm-hmm. the, the 97.9978, or if you see an investment projection and, and you're going to have a return of two decimal places or whatever, and you think, actually, you know what, you, you can't assess it oh, with yeah. that level of Absolutely. accuracy. It's spurious Absolutely. accuracy, but you're communicating a message. Yeah, and, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and maybe yeah. there's a good, a good aspect if I want to communicate and get across the gravity of the situation, well, gravity of the situation, sort of pun intended in this case, maybe there's a benefit in giving some of that confidence with it, but it's it's that little message that comes with those two decimal Mm. places that maybe is getting overlooked. What what, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think we all know that, you know, if we're trying to do uh, forecasts and to two decimal places, the first thing you do normally is you just, you take not only the decimal places out of the pack, right? Like who put that in? Um, and you try and really band it up, right? If it's 33.17, take the 1.7 off and make it 30 to 35 at, at best because we're all dealing with uncertainties. So it depends on the, the, the purpose, I guess. Yes, the 33.17%, for example, that I just made up sounds really accurate. So it shows that I know what I'm doing. So there is a job protection uh, function there that we might have. Like we're really, we're really smart and we run the models. But um, I think you need to look at the purpose of what you're trying to communicate across. Um, so ranging ranges are definitely, uh, I think, a more true outcome if it's something that's uncertain. And the uncertainty is something we're in risk. So we need to say if there is uncertainty, we need to show that through a range. And if we're really certain, like for example, and I wanted to use the VAR method as a, you know, where can this, where can this work? You know, if we have historical simulations, I can be very accurate. I can say at a 99%, you know, probability we're going to exceed this loss based on this kind of data. So I can be very but I have to define it very specifically on what it is, but I can be then very accurate on that. Um, yeah, but in that one, that, that's interesting because so you could say, based on these modeling parameters, well, I'm 99% sure that this will happen, but mm. I'm only 50% sure that the modeling parameters are correct <laughs> or something that's... <laughs> As Ted Lasso would say, is there a question in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the question, I guess, in which I was probably being too too polite to to ask, was: Are we conning people by saying, based on these modelling parameters, we're ninety nine percent sure? When the first part has so much uncertainty around it, I guess it depends what it is you're talking about. But if it's human behaviour, for example, oh, if it's yeah, yeah. markets, if it's economics, oh, those yeah. sorts of things. I mean, mm. my goodness, you look at some of the psychology and say, oh, we know mm. personality is correlated with this, and we know mm-hmm. socioeconomic status is correlated with that. But by goodness, mm. when, whenever we try and predict something about an individual and say, oh, yeah, we've, we've got all these particular data points about this person, we've given them this test and that test, and then we try and predict do they end up in jail or do they we predict whether they end up get going through a master's degree or mm. something like that. Mm. And the level of predictive accuracy mm. is dishearteningly small, <laughs> So mm. even mm. with all that data. So we've got per- these perfect models, but still in those domains, mm. at least it's obviously yeah. it's quite different if you're looking at a meteor coming through and you've got sort of fairly accurate uh, yeah um, yeah models, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes case. exactly yeah yeah exactly I, I think this is also why uh there's a focus in the industry on say predictable or explainable ai because of that very issue yeah if you have this an ai model that can be predictable have a predictability but you need to be able to explain what it actually is based on. You want to see its testing. And as, as it was shown in the movie, there was no peer reviews or back testing on any of that. Uh, so, you know. Yeah. 
And another thing you uh, mentioned that I thought was quite interesting as well is rather than using some of these numerical estimates is using bands that are described as as likely or probable or mm. whatever the categories you were uh, mm. you were using there and one of, and I can see the the benefit in replacing this spuriously accurate two decimal point number with something that is more vague just because there's uncertainty in it mm. however I'm also reflecting on some of the research that says if if you go to I don't know samples of a thousand people say and ask them what percentage would you assign to something that was called likely and you get this widely dispersed range of uh, of people's interpretation, mm. even things like always. So you might think, well, always, that should be 100%. But if I say, hey, I always take the bins out on the Tuesday night, do I really mean 100% of the time? Or do I mean, well, occasionally we're on a holiday and I don't do it then. Occasionally, I don't know, something else. Do, do I actually really mean 100 Anyway, so I guess we're replacing the spurious accuracy with possibly these these things that are open to mm. multiple interpretations. So what's your sense mm. on sort of mm. balancing those two different risks? Yeah, I think what you try and do is uh, look on each individual case. You're probably right. Um, I think what I would then look at is in the calibration across a whole bunch of different risks that we face in an organization. So first of all, as a, as a job, as a risk manager, is you don't want to stand, become too myopic on one risk. So where these things can really work is to weed out the ones where people would say almost versus the ones where they say possible versus the ones where they say unlikely versus the ones where they say never going to happen. Um, because uh, if I link that to what the impacts are on my business, guess where I'm going to focus? I'm definitely going to focus on the ones that are almost. Now, if in that category, I still have five risks and they're all still very different in their, their perception, at least at least I've tried to weed out from those from the ones that are you know, most unlikely. Um, and that's really the job, right? So it's like if you focus in on the, that one particular event, you say, now let's try and define almost certain as you just try to do. Uh, maybe that's a level where it becomes what, what we call, you know, probably decision irrelevant. You know, it might be irrelevant whether almost means 50 weeks of the year or 52 weeks of the year, you know. Um, so is it actually relevant for the end decision that I need to make or that my MD or that the board needs to make? And if it's not decision relevant, then there's no relevant, there's no difference between 52 weeks in the year or 15, yeah. 50. Yeah. So that's probably yeah. the most important thing. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, one of the mm. things I guess I've, I've, I'm reflecting on there is some research, which I've read some time back now, so I probably won't um, recall it perfectly. But uh, out of the UK, they were looking at how um, uh, sort of the um, risk profiling tools then that financial advisors are using and how they then mm. communicate aspects of risk back to financial, financial planning clients. And one of the challenges they had is that you use category labels like here's an investment with medium risk. And it's, it's so vague and, and people don't understand what medium risk means that you then need to accompany it with, oh, what that means is that two years out of seven or three years out of seven or one year of seven or whatever it is, mm. then you should expect to experience a, a negative return in that period. Or you, you had to provide some level of more detail around it. Otherwise, I go in thinking, mm. oh, medium risk sounds fine. That's like a guarantee, right? <laughs> Someone else is like, no, 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 that's, a, that's not what medium medium risk means. So that, yes. yeah, but I, I quite like your approach of saying, well, what actually is the the, the decision critical aspect of it? So mm. you can um, tailor your communication in that respect. 
Yeah. So I've only got um, one more question to throw to you. So I invite other people who are participating, if they've got something on the tip of their tongue, to feel free to, to cogitate it and um, uh, insert it into the chat and we'll uh, get to it uh, thereafter. But in the meantime, the last question I had was, I guess you sort of picked up as a bit on the way through, was about if you looked at the context that the president was in when these scientists came. All right, so the scientists in their world, oh, my God, this meteor is coming, the world's going to end. So what could be more important than that? <clears throat> However, then they rock up to see the president and the president, well, there was a Senate, no, not a Senate, it was a Supreme Court nomination, I think, that they were worried about. And then they had midterm elections coming up and it, there was a lot of other stuff, <clears throat> as you can, I guess, as you can imagine, going on in the life of the president. Um, and that's and that's, we're not all presidents, of course, but I mean, the same sort of thing is going on in the world uh, generally. I mean, you talk to someone, they're going to have what other, other businesses they're reviewing if they're a regulator and what other issues they're dealing with if they've got an operational or board role. There's, there's going to be a whole bunch of, uh, of distractions. So the key challenge then becomes, well, how do I get people to, to how do I cut through, I guess, the noise? So you've already, I think, mentioned one or two things on the way through this conversation. What else would you mm. add that um, can help um, to do that? Yeah, I mean that, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Is there's so much, there's so many, so much distraction. We're all distracted constantly, uh, and I think that that's a uh, that's actually something I'm 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 reading a lot more about now and trying to really get my head around on how to how to actually do this a bit better because. In, you know, not only is the media constantly bombarding all our audiences with numbers, as we just talked about, all these probabilities, all these forecasts, you know, if you look at the range of economists predicting interest rate rises, for example, you know, it just, everyone has an opinion, a model, it sounds reasoned, and your audience will be bombarded by all of this. And then when you're talking or when, you know, about this, you'll just, you have to realize you just one more voice, right? You just want additional. So how do you cut through is a very, very good question. It comes back to some of the things we talked about earlier in terms of making sure or that you you are seen in, as an integral part, I think, of that decision making. You're just part of the team that you know you, you don't have to constantly say, "Well, hang on, what about risk?" You know, if, if that's still the case after all those years, then you're not on the right spot, I think. So, making sure you are actually really, really well connected with your peers is an absolutely vital thing, I think, because then it means they are listening to you when they're thinking about their. Um, their judgments that and the decisions they need to make and they place more weight on that than say maybe something they read on Twitter. Well, you'd hope so, right? But 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 you you you, don't, you never know. You never know what what people are getting getting um, uh, where they're getting their news from. And unfortunately, you know, as we've seen in the pandemic and and what we've seen in a lot of research showing now is that clearly intelligence, although a very important factor into making a good decision, the it's the active open-mindedness that is actually probably a more important factor uh, are you willing to change your mind if you are confronted by new facts which is a statement we all know um, but i think it becomes very very important in the light of um, being so much having so much information at our fingertips and and again you're you're not the only one who can feed the uh, your you know your your um, your board or your your peers with uh, with information they're getting it from many different sources so i think um and in answering your question i think is really trying to understand what it is that your business tries to achieve and what the people in the room what their major concerns are and and making sure that you can 
put yourself in their shoes and and say, okay, I've got yes, I've got some risk messages here to um, bring across, but you know, we still have to run a business together, and it is it is our business. So how do we do this in a way that actually works for everybody? And and as long as that that comes across from both sides, then we get to a right outcome through the dialogue. So yeah. it's it's making sure you're you 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 calibrated correctly, as I said earlier on. Yeah, um, mm. I've got a couple other things I'd, I'd add from my perspective. Whilst agreeing with you, and I think you've probably picked up a couple of these things to some extent already. Uh, one is the idea of layering, and this is often when I talk to a super fund or a financial advice group or investment manager about, which is to say, if I've got a whole lot of stuff to communicate, I just want to chop it into layers. Get what's the biggest ticket, most important thing? Put that up front. That's on the cover page. That's on the title. That's sort of on the in the title of my email. It's mm, right. Mm, you get hit mm, with that thing, mm, or if it's a mm. conversation, that's the first thing I say. And we and we saw that problem in the movie as well, didn't we? Where the scientists sort of got lost in the weeds before they'd actually communicated the main thing that this thing mm. is going to destroy the earth. So mm. I, I would say that sort of layering, mm. whether it's in mm. written or, or verbal uh, format, I'd also say the timing that like, to, if, gosh, it's it's so much better if you can send pe people a message at the time that they're ready for it. I mean, even some of the behavioral research is quite fun where you, I don't know, if you send someone a a message about joining a gym, they're more likely to respond to it just around New Year's because that's when they're doing their resolutions and reflecting on their lives or around a birthday or, and it's particularly relevant in an investment context when some of those milestone birthdays where people start to consider their retirement or at marriage, they might mm -hmm. consider their insurance or if they have a kid. So if you can time it, get the timing uh, right. Mm, and mm, another mm. part, which I think you've already yeah. probably picked up on is the personal relevance yeah. is like, what does this mean for you? And yeah. if you can't articulate that, you're sort of whistling into the wind, I think, to some extent going, well, here's this theoretical thing. But if I can't yeah, interpret and go, why should I care yeah. about this thing? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, it just sort of seems yeah. like we're, if we stop short of being able to answer that question, what this means for you right now is X. Mm -hmm. And we leave that up to the poor person who's receiving our communication to interpret that. And then they're yes. like, well, why should I listen to you? I don't even yeah. know whether this is relevant for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You should almost like this. Uh, I think you should almost know it better than they do when it's relevant. Um, mm -hmm. And also back to your timing. That's an excellent point you make. Um, I really, you know, we, and you should, again, you should know your audience. Like I know that I shouldn't be talking about some of those risk things that might be on my mind. If I know that say RMD is in the middle of um, doing corporate planning and he's busy with, I know he's distracted by other things, unless it's clear, if it's a major operational thing, yes, immediately, because it, it would trump that. But if I know that it doesn't trump that, it's just something we're thinking about to change a risk management policy. I'm not even going to go and have a, I'll wait. That this thing can wait, you know. So you again, it makes you have to have your own judgments there on, you know, because if you just keep coming in with droning in with your things when they're important to you, then again, it means that on the long term you're not being seen as being that relevant because you're just not listening to what's actually happening in the in the in the in the organisation and and timing, as you say to your point, those messages correctly so that they get the maximum kind of traction that you want them to get so that yeah, i think yeah. timing is indeed a very very important one that you you'll probably use and learn to adapt to over time yep well speaking of timing we've got about seven minutes left and i see there's a yep. few things coming through the chat so let's why don't we turn to those um firstly michael churchill thank you very much for sending in comments fascinating discussion any thoughts on how broadly understood the concept of the bell curve slash standard deviation is is it solely the domain of risk slash finance folk 
what would you say on that one, Mike? Um, look, my well, look, my experience it probably is. Uh, I don't know what the standard deviation rate that is, but uh, I, I, look, when I talk to, uh, I talk, sometimes talk at risk in risk conferences when we used to have them pre-COVID, um, and when we were talking about anything to do with simulations or market data and distributions, I saw people who were getting very fascinated and then they started looking at their phones because it's like, it doesn't really apply to a lot of other businesses. So if you're dealing with a lot, let's face it, and that's what we're talking about here, low probability or operational risk events, there is not a lot of data. You're not dealing with market data. How is it relevant? Um, Probably on the other hand, I would say it probably is more, it should be probably as relevant, uh, but I'm just haven't really experienced it myself. So be keen to hear from others. I would think that, Studies done, for example, on treatment of patients and uh, or calls in call centers and client service. You know, how do we? How quickly are we resolving calls? All those things follow distributions that you can analyze and say, well, why are why are the outliers? And can we get can we bring the standard deviations in so that we are more consistent in the way we deliver service? Yes. So if you if you have a quantitative background, you can apply it anywhere. So. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, my, my reflections on that question would be, one, I, I remember, um, again, this is a Kahneman reference, uh, being him being at a statistical conference, and he asked the audience a relatively straightforward question about how confident they could be based on a certain sample size. And even amongst a conference to, of sort of statistical professors and yada yada, even then, despite the fact that they understood what standard deviation was, their ability to intuitively apply that concept mm. was still lacking. And I see that all over the place in some mm. of the stuff that I'm doing. I reckon people would have heard of a standard deviation. I reckon they could have a crack at defining it. They could draw me a bell curve. But do they have an intuitive sense of how it actually applies to a situation when you're dealing with different aspects of risk and uncertainty? I think that bit's much less likely to be present. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yep. Cool. Well, let's go to Andrew Gruskin. Following on from Good Michael's question, uh, is there a bias in assessment of risk to conceive outcomes as symmetrical bell curve or do individuals in their brains more assess risk asymmetrically and skewed or has the prevalence of the bell curve come to precondition risk assessments are we too bell curve focused or are you on a skew do you think uh, mike um, i don't think um I think we are more. It's a good question. I don't think that the bell that the bell curve concept. I think people are more skewed in that regard. And to, to your point, they probably over and underreact. So it's like uh, they are, they're probably slightly you know either being too optimistic or too pessimistic. And you know, and clearly on average we're getting it right. But 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 I think that people. That's why I think you need to look at a good um, decision making process to get you to a more um, defined or um, stable process of decision making, uh, but I think individuals probably tend to be, I think, more skewed. I would, I would say, uh, um, every day you might, you know, be a bit more on this side or on that side of it, don't you? Um, I don't know. I think it, it's a great question, uh, but I, I think that the, on average, I think the bell curve would apply in in people's overall judgments as a group, but I think uh, individuals could definitely be more on one side of the spectrum or the other, depending on how you feel in the day. Yeah, I, I, I just wonder whether people are so poor at intuitive statistical thinking generally mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. they probably haven't got a, a very good conception of a distribution 
at all, let alone the skewness of that distribution. But it mm. might be implicit, I guess, in the decision making. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at through that lens. If I look at it through the lens of, um, uh, like I just talked about, the whole concept of active open-mindedness, one of the things around noise is if people are influenced one day by, for example, you know, I've just had a really bad experience, so my outlook on the world's bad, versus the next day uh, I've had some good experiences, so the outlook on the world is good, you are getting influenced so much by other other information that will then determine your decision making how do you as a good decision maker you have to try and weed that out like i can't you know i have to disentangle the bad events from the decision i need to make which could be actually a good decision you know a good outcome so people people are finding it hard probably to disentangle that but they should yeah. from a decision making point of view okay so a couple of minutes mm -hmm. left we've got yep. time for this last one so sure. thanks uh, vanessa Th uh, thoughts uh, thoughts on how to get cut through on the real meaning and or intent behind risk buzzwords. <laughs> risk culture is heavily used, yet lightly understood, it loses its impact over time. So it loses its impact over time. Thoughts on getting cut through on buzzwords, risk culture, to use that one? Oh, I've just written a whole presentation for board on it in the next two weeks. So I know I need to <laughs> rewrite timing that. Vanessa. Thank you. Thanks, Vanessa. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, look, I think um, you really want to, indeed, this comes back to the, the, the where you insert with the narrative, you want to make sure you're not throwing in buzzwords, three-letter acronyms. We all like to do those things. We're all coming at it from our own profession. Yeah, try and avoid it where you can and try and explain what you mean. Um, so risk culture, for example, for us, we actually say, well, it's actually, it's, it's our own cultural engagement alignment survey, and we have a few risk questions in there. So we're trying to downplay, actually even using and trying to define what a risk culture is as part of a subset of your business culture. So there are ways in which you can go about doing that, but yeah, try not to be too, um, uh, yeah, technical in that. It's a hard balancing act. You want to be tech seen as technical because you're the expert, but you want to also get level it up with your uh, audience as well so that uh, your message comes across right yeah and I, my only reflection on that would be to say and but whatever the words are that we mean that we're using what does it mean for you the audience why should you care i guess that's probably what mm. i'd be mm. i'd be looking for mm. anyway so, sorry to cut you off it's uh, time's up and i see people are having to leave um as we speak so we should uh, wind up Thank you very much, Mike, for all your insights and input in today's conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. If people want to get in touch with you, can they do so via LinkedIn? Yeah, oh, sure. Absolutely. Yep. Totally. Perfect. Same with me. Um, you can just shoot me a message on LinkedIn if you're interested in uh, chatting more about some of the sort of concepts. Uh, some of my uh, articles, the one I mentioned, um, is available on LinkedIn, or you can check me out on my website, behavioralfinanceaustralia.com.au. And on that note, I think we'll wind it up there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure.